1: From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week we're going to visit the U.S. Mexico border. It stretches 1,954 miles from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. The intersection of humanity along that imaginary line is very real. And beyond the headlines are stories of people who live along the border, who have arrived there from distant lands and people and people who live a life with one foot on either side. We're going to hear three stories this week that will hopefully put the border in a different light. A story about a festival of music that you would not expect from the border. And we're going to hear from a musician from Colombia who has found a place for herself and her music on the southern side of the line. And a story about bullfighting, but not in the way you think. First up, that bullfighting story. We're gonna meet Fred Rank. He is a 74-year-old former amateur bullfighter who runs a bull ranch called La Querencia, just north of McAllen, Texas, which is about 10 miles from the border. He runs a bullfighting school. It's one of the few bullfighting schools that teaches what one bullfighter calls 20 minutes of absolute truth to women as well as men. This interview is produced by Katie Hayes Luke, a photojournalist who was working on a book about bullfighting. And it is important to note that on this side of the border, bullfighting is a bloodless
2: sport. The bulls live. My name is Fred Rank. I built the the only bull ring in the whole 49 states of the United States. And I built it here in the year 2000, 15 years ago. And where are we? We're in La Gloria, Texas, north of the valley, uh, McAllen, about 45 minutes.
0: And um, is there much bullfighting culture around here?
2: No, there never has been. You know, the only way we got the culture started was to put on the fights for the school kids. We started in Roma, and we brought 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth graders. Not kids with their pants hanging down around their rear ends, that that the, the, high, the, the high school bunch. And we've worked, we worked all the way into McAllen now. But it's teaching them their culture. You know, the Hispanic, being Mexican is one thing, but they also have that Spanish blood in them. So they walk out of here real proud, these young kids. So that's what, what we do on the off season before school lets out, and we feed them and bring them out here free. School buses coming, one right after another. You can put 1,400 kids in that bull ring out there. <laughs> but it was—it's always been fun to do that.
0: So tell me a little bit about how, um, where you're from and how you got interested in bullfighting and your history with that. Well, I
2: lived in the valley, you know, most of my life, but was raised in the mountains of New Mexico on the Raton Pass, Colorado-New Mexico line. And went to the seminary when I was real young in Santa Fe and uh, studied to be a priest. And I saw my first bullfight in 1952. When I was an exchange student at the University of Chihuahua in the capital of Chihuahua, the state of Mexico, it was Pepe Luis Vasquez. and that, and I never forgot it. And I came back and my vocation had somewhat dimmed, and so I just I left the seminary and joined the Marine Corps. And when I came back from the overseas, Korea and Japan, I went right away to Mexico to try to be a bullfighter.
0: And how old were you?
2: Oh, I was nineteen twenty. Twenty years old. Twenty-one. That's exactly twenty-one, because I did four years in the the Marine Corps.
0: And can you tell me, I was thinking last night about, like, how somebody's passion may stay the same, but their vision for themselves may change. So when you were twenty-one, what was your vision within bullfighting for yourself?
2: Well, I had a job, you know, I was selling water treatment equipment. And, uh, and I, I'm still doing it. We're still building water treatment, purification equipment. But, you know, to go to Mexico and try to, is, it, there was no gringos, no, no Americans fighting in those, in those years. The, the one that was, was in Spain, John Fulton. And uh, just to get somebody to, to help train you. You know, you're learning to do, it's like taking ballet. You, you get in there, you learn how to move the capes, and, and of course you have to overcome your fear too. You know, the first time you get in front of an animal. First time I did, it was here in Reynosa and I came down to fight. I couldn't move. Couldn't move my hands, couldn't do anything. <laughs> you know, the bull moved the cape for me. So then I started moving and it was okay. But I fought, you know, I didn't fight a lot, not like my son has fought, but I think that opened the door for David, really. So my, and my, the, the great thing about it was I was appearing in, in waters, and I met David's mother in the bull ring. I, I dedicated a bull to her. I called her the White Dove because she, I didn't know that she was third runner-up Miss Texas back in those years, you know, she worked at the phone company. But I went to Las Cruces where she was working and I took her out to lunch and took her out to dinner three weeks in a row, every night out to dinner and married her. Then I had David, there was David. He saw me wounded in Juarez when he was four and a half years old, but he, he still wanted to go on and try. He didn't play with cap guns in the backyard. He, he played with a stick and a napkin as a bullfighter. But he was crippled, he was born crippled, club feet. So we had his feet operated on at Hotel Du Hospital, and he was in a wheelchair, and would you believe that Pepe Luis Vasquez came to the third largest bull ring in the world, which was Juarez, the Monumental, and it was his last fight there. He saw David because he knew me, and he went over and dedicated the bull to David. Said, so you can do anything, anything that you try to do in life, and you can do it. And David's not supposed to say anything. He said, even be a matador like you? He said, yes. And 10 years to the day, from that day, David became become a full matador in that bull ring, and Epilis was standing there right beside me. So it was quite a story to see him do that. And then of the five before him, he was the sixth since 1901. And the five before him had never confirmed in the world's largest ring. David went in there in 83 and being the only North American to ever get his his PhD. See, your doctorate is when you become a matador, but you've got to confirm it. But David did it and accomplished it, and there's been no Americans since. Quite a feat.
0: So then did you, once you were not, I mean, your passion still was bullfighting.
2: Oh, And then it became David's, His career. After David had fought for about 15 years, I came out and bought this ranch and moved my company out here, Rink Water Systems International. And um, I was sitting at this table, this very table one day, and my company was a Vietnam vet, and and he'd always been out here to help me with electrical and all that, and I know that you met him over a few years ago, Joe Palmas. I said, we're gonna build a ball ring. come on. We walked out in that field over there, and I put a stake in the ground, and I said, now, walk over there Forty-five steps, and he walked over there. I said, "Put a stake there." Now go over ten steps here, like that, to make a perfect circle. The next day, we were putting posts in the ground, and we got it. We got that part of it built in about two months, out of steel and welding. And then I said, "Well, we got the ring. We, you know, now we got to have some seats. You know, for people to, to sit." We were, we really were. My idea was to form a bullfight school. We had David to help, we had Raquel Martinez, who was the first lady matador in history, would come down and teach. We had Pepe Luis, we had Jim Verner, they were all willing to help. But you know, so we built some seats and we had no corrals. What are we gonna do? We we, got, we bring in fighting bulls, we gotta have corrals, so that's what happened out there. There's 100,000 feet of agency purling in that bull ring, And at that time it was a dollar a foot. Today it's worth about three. And then you got to talk about the labor. We had three welders going and all of a sudden we had a bull ring there and we had seats and we had corrals. And now we brought the animals in, Rafael Mendoza. That's where that started. And we brought the cows and started breeding the animals here. So we're the only breeder in 49 states as well as the only bull ring. And it's still going on. It's, it's like they say in the bullfight world, the gusano has you, the worm is in your stomach constantly eating, (laughs) eating away at you, you know, until you bigger, bigger, bigger. So look at us, here we are, and have a bullfight like we had yesterday. The thing completely almost sold out. You know, the first one was a sellout. And then have little Carla and all these other matadors coming. And you help them, that's helping them too. Because the publicity, for instance, Lupita Lopez fought here five years. She was in the New York Times sports section, big, big photographs. Kirsten, uh, I can't remember her last name, but she went even to Mexico City when she became a full matador. I mean, she started here. So a lot of people have started here. Look at little Carla. She performed so great yesterday. And you heard what her father said this morning. She's going to fight on horseback as well. But, you know, and I, you, I I, can't think of how many have come here to the bullfight school. Two have made it. To, to, to be Novietos. Uh, there's no Matadors yet, but who knows? Who knows? There may be one coming. Uh, but that's the way we did it. And and today, looking at that bull ring out there and, and the acoustics in that thing are beautiful. You know, I asked a, a, a guy, any questions? Like, like I didn't do it yesterday, but I'm, I normally do. I said, any questions? And some old guys on the other side says, well, how long you been raising these fighting bulls? He says, I've been raising bucking bulls for about 40 years. And I, I said, well, in 300 BC, a bull came into an amphitheater in Crete, and four gladiators were waiting for him. An hour later, they were all laying on the ground, and the bull left. That's how long we've been working with fighting animals, fighting stock. It's that old. And boy, he said, took his hat off and bowed and sat back down, you know. But it, that's why that big photo is out there of that bull as uh, Alexander the Great and he said, you're getting their the majestic snorting great the eyelids of the dawn, quote by Alexander the Great, 300 B.C. and Julius Caesar, they are the bulls, 100 A.D. So there's 2,000 years right there. The fighting bull has been a leader in 13 countries, the leading art, not a sport, art, because they call it the ballet of death there. Ours is called the ballet of life because the bull lives, and he gets to go to the rodeo and chase the clowns the rest of his life, (laughs) you know. So it's kind of unique. That's just Fred Rank's idea.
1: Since 2009, Katie Hayes-Luke has been traveling to southern Texas to document bloodless bullfighting at La Cerencia. You can see her photos at the NPR photography website, The Picture Show. You are listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music, and that is the music of performer Natalia Serna, who calls herself La Muna. She's a Colombian-American musician who lives on the southern side of the border. The song is called Fuego and was inspired by three nights she spent riding La Bestia, a train running from southern Mexico that transports migrants to the U.S. border where they await their fate. Alt-Latino contributor Rihanna Cruz talked to Cerna with the cooperation of Palabra, the digital outlet of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Cruz talked to La Muna over Zoom from a house in Hermosillo, Mexico, that she has converted into a refuge for immigrants seeking asylum in the United States. She started the interview by asking La Muna about the inspiration for moving to Mexico.
0: because I grew up between Columbia and the U.S., I feel like I've always lived between a couple different worlds. Um, And when I moved to Chicago to do college, I lived in Pilsen, which was like the most amazing neighborhood you can live in in Chicago. It was just like bustling with mexican Latino life, you know? And there was this amazing um, energy in the barrio, you know, and there's so many musicians. Uh, and I started to just fall in love, I think, with with Mexico, and at the same time, with this whole post 9-11 world in the U.S., things just really got nasty towards Latinos, and we, I think that realizing that my neighbors were being detained, seeing these huge marches that happened around 2008, which I think culminated in L.A. Uh, Seeing hundreds of thousands of Latinos, Mexicans, and people that were undocumented in general on the street really got my attention. Be like, what's going on, you know? Um, And so that took me for the first time, brought me down to the border in 2000, the summer of 2009. Spent a little time on the Arizona border uh, with a group called No More Deaths that does really great work um, right in the desert. They used to have a camp back that year in the middle of the desert, literally. Uh, And then I came down to Mexico and I did some, you know, some traveling with Central American migrants. And I did the train between San Luis, no, Veracruz, which is kind of southern central Mexico, all the way to San Luis Potosí. And uh, that really just, I think that there's moments in life where where something happens to you and you're like, I'm never going to be the same person again, you know. Um, And I think that was one of those moments where it's like, This, like, I'm just never gonna be the same person again. Being on a train, being with these guys, like experimenting the, the, what they were feeling, doing this journey with them, uh, sensing this this amount of solidarity that migrants have for each other. It was just so moving, I was like, you know. And so I left a couple years and came back in 2003, and I have not left Mexico since. Spent between 2003 and 2007 on the border um, in Nogales, Arizona, which is just about an hour south of Tucson. And I spent three years there working with folks that had been deported. Uh, A lot of people deported from Phoenix, from the Arizona region, a lot of dads. um, And that was, you know, I think. For my music, at least, that was like a a change. You know, once I came to Mexico, I started to write about what was going on around me, not so much within me, I think. For most musicians, we're sentimental. (laughs) And it's like, whoa, me and my world, and this and that. But coming to the border, I was like, whoa, the world, oh my God. Uh, And I was just, uh, just awash in this amount of emotion being just like, I don't know, Humbled by the degree of, of pain and injustice that you see on the border every day, you know, and so spent a bunch of years on the border and right now I'm here in Hermosillo <laughs> and um, my current work it deals more with folks that are asking for refugee status and primarily Central Americans that are traveling to the border uh, and that are fleeing Central America because of just this increasing chaos that's that's making life impossible
3: (laughs) that's that's perfect that sums it that sums it up the best so in in the article you say a really interesting thing about your music not wanting to be commercial um which i think is a really interesting way to look at it who is specifically your audience and and what is your intent when you create
0: you know I'm really like uh I'm pretty folk and pop you know cuz I didn't go to school so I would say my music isn't um its format isn't anti commercial it's you know I, I I think I write um music that's based out of folk and pop, primarily. But the themes are just not that commercial, you know? Because most people really don't want to sit around and like think about how the border is falling apart and and the pain that these people are bringing to, the, to this situation, you know? And so, <sighs> I don't know who my audience is. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think that I don't. I don't really think of an audience, and I use whatever format I think will respect the lyrics of the songs. You know, so um, there are songs that I have written that um, the lyrics maybe are really painful, and for some reason I feel like a wapango or a, a, like a more. Southern traditional folk style will work for it. And then there are other songs that are rap, you know. I'm not great at, at making rap, but for some reason I feel like the way that the words will be transmitted the best, will be will get to, to the listener um, the best, would use that format. So it really just depends, the words I think for me guide the format that I use and I also really don't think of it much because honestly because most of these songs are coming from the experiences of those around me I feel like if you start to think about it a lot that you're just getting in the way you know and so it's really just um, it's more of a visceral experience whatever comes out it just that's what it is you know and you just let it go and then you know I try and in these songs that I write you know, about the people around me, of course, at the end, you have to take them back to the person that from which the song was born, right? And um, for me, it's like, if the song works for them, then I'm happy with it, you know? Do you find find it uplifting? Or
3: or is it more of a draining experience? Because I, I, I feel like when you're writing songs about this type of topic, it can be a little bit emotionally taxing.
0: I think that what's emotionally taxing is just not having an answer for people, you know. It's like being on the border and receiving a dad that's just been deported and being like, I just don't know how to get you back to your kids. You know, that is, that is terrible, you know. Or, or seeing a, a refugee family here and fighting for a year with the government to get the refugee status and being denied and then being like, I just don't know what else to do. I think, you know, the reality of the world is, is taxing, but art always gives us a reason to believe that it's, it's worth it, you know? There's something redemptive about art where we're like, it, it, life is sometimes, but then you make it into a piece of art and it's like, yeah, but there's something beautiful about it, but there's something eternal about it, but there is something about it, you know? And so I think that if it weren't for the songs really, I don't, um, I don't think I could keep doing it. It's just like the escape valve for me.
3: Yeah, totally. Um, So I've assumed you've crossed paths with a lot of people, um, all with interesting stories and walks of life. Can you tell a story specifically that has given you hope, perhaps, in in your line of work?
0: There's always, you know, certain people that you remember with like, I don't know, in a a special way. And I remember a lot a name, a man by the name of uh, Mr. Hernandez, who is from central Mexico. Uh, and he was like the first deported dad I was very close to, and he spent maybe like four or five months on the border. Um, and Mr. Hernandez, you know, he had done like everything right that you're supposed to do as a Mexican dad, you know. Left when he was 14, his rancho in Guanajuato was the first one from his rancho to go to the US, like made it in the dairy farm business, and you uh, got his truck got his house had his four kids and he's just like he has this beautiful voice of like the movie era of mexico where he's just like he was just struck with me as an amazing person and you know one day he's driving to school to pick up his kids and he gets detained by an officer that says get out of the car and where's your social security number and he's like i don't have one right so he gets deported, you know, these things happen overnight, and he spent the last 15 years of his life in the U.S., and now sur- suddenly he's in Nogales, and, and you start to see how these, I think so many of these men, like Mr. Hernandez, uh, they're men that in some way like went to war, and nobody understands the depth of their pain, because they went from living in, you know, Fresno, California, working on a dairy farm, taking the kids to school, to being on the border in the middle of a narco war, like humiliated by border patrol, you know, kidnapped by the narcos, and they are just trying to make it back, you know. And Hernandez tried maybe like 4 or 5 times, was practically kidnapped, humiliated. And just went through like everything a man can go through, and it comes to a point where you just they, you know, they just don't want to call home because they don't know what to tell the kids, you know. And you don't. How can you explain to a four-year-old that you're deported? They don't get it, right? Uh, and so, you know, Mr. Hernandez, uh, determined as he was, on his like sixth attempt, walked to Phoenix. And uh, he called me when he was arriving to Phoenix, and he said, Natalia, tengo bien jodido el pie. My foot is all messed up, but I'm in Phoenix. And, you know, thank you." And then he left. And I think. What I, what I have learned from him and from people in general is that the human spirit is very resilient. So you, like, you just really don't see an out to the situation. There seems to be no out to the situation. Yeah, I remember them and I get really like upset, man, because there's so many stories of parents where they're like, they did everything right. They did everything right they were supposed to do. And then one day they woke up and they're like, you're not seeing your kids ever again. And why would we do this to people? It's just I it's so sick. I hope some famous person makes a really good movie that makes us open up our eyes of what we did to these Mexican families. Not only Mexican, although I think they took the, the weight of it of the post nine eleven world, but man, it was yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine. Um and
3: in these situations you feel do you feel like art is is especially important in, in inspiring hope and, and sort of rallying people to channel that resilience?
0: Art gives communities an opportunity of remembering where they come from, you know, if you have no sense of your story and the value of your story, you're just lacking in force to to make it better, you know? And so I think art has that power to be like, this is where we come from. And we're proud of where we come from, you know, it and, and we're here and we're not going away, you know, (laughs) and I, you know, not only in the Latino community, but in the black community, it's like, you, you can be really a closed-minded racist person, but you see somebody sing, you know, regardless of where they come from, and you're like, wow, that person has a soul, that person has spirit, that person is, you know, I think the art has that way of, like, really tearing down certain boundaries that we build up
3: with the so with the crisis on the border and it feels like it's never ending and even with the photos that have recently come out of the Haitian immigrants on the border your work is becoming increasingly more and more important um and how do you feel specifically that you're contributing to sort of uh, ease the struggle or or resolve sort of some of the tension of the immigration policy
0: I don't you know I think just when you most of these songs they're they're all born in the same place you know they're born of a like a friendship with a very particular person and and out of like a a deep sense of like solidarity with what they're going through or with their pain and it and these songs are just like reflecting you know that pain that the person is is feeling and I, i think that for the audience what i would hope for is that when they sit with these songs it just brings them back to to reality you know because in the world of media and facebook and the internet it's like there's just so much noise you know and everybody has like an opinion about the world you know and then you just sit with a person you're like so where are you from and what's going on with your life and wow man that's really hard you know I think it just reminds us like we're just people on this earth, you know i i I wanna believe at least that the songs just bring us back to to the fact that we're we're just people, you know, we're people here, and like the only way to really be on this earth and to be fully human is to like remember that we're just like one family sitting here, you know, I think once you start to get away from this. From that reality, the fact that we're really just one family and we're not that different one from another. Our circumstances are different, but our pains are not. You know, um, we get a possibility of just like really, really being on Earth and really being for each other. And when we don't, when we don't assume that reality, when we don't face that truth that we're just one family here, we start to really get caught up in a in a vicious cycle of nastiness. Um, and of policies like the ones you see on the border where not only the U.S., but countries are increasingly closing their borders and making it more and more difficult. And it's just really not like, what's the world that we want to live in? That's not the world. It's not, in my opinion, it's not the way forward, you know? Sweet, thank you for, for your thoughtful answers. Those are all the
3: questions that, that we have um, from Alt Latino. Is there anything else that uh, I'm not asking that you want to mention or um,
0: talk about? I think one of the better decisions I made when I was in college or a couple years ago or younger, I don't know, was to like be curious about the world around me and what was what was going on around me, you know, and going out to the marches and seeing the Latino community on the street and getting curious about migrants on the border. Like I would say to all of those folks, especially not to not Not to say that older people can't get involved but especially young people man you have a chance to just do whatever the heck you want with your life man anything especially if you're in college or post-college just like throw the world out the window you like go to the border i don't know if you feel called to africa go to africa if you feel called, just like get involved with the world like i think we're really afraid especially in this world that we're just not gonna make it, that we're not gonna have enough, that we're gonna like starve to death and not pay rent. It's like the world will take care of you, you know? Go out, if you're not if you're not involved in your neighborhood, go out and get involved with your neighborhood, get involved with your neighbors, get involved in the marches, like just get a taste for the world because it's changing uh, and it's gonna keep changing and the world in 50 years will not be the world today and it's gotta have to be a different world because otherwise we're not gonna be here. <laughs> So that's what I would say. And beside that, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure.
4: <laughs>
0: Thanks
1: again to Rihanna Cruz from Team Out Latino and also to the NHJ. Beatriz Limon, who wrote a story about La Muna, and Noel Haro Gomez, who took the photos. You can find all of that at, at PalabraNAHJ.org. And finally, we're going to hear about a music festival that takes place in northern Baja, California. And if you're thinking cowboy hats and accordions, think again. Baja Beach Fest has become one of the biggest celebrations of reggaeton anywhere. It's two days featuring the biggest names in the genre, and it's spread out over two weekends in Rosarito Beach, which is just 30 miles south of San Diego. I spoke with the festival's promoters, Chris Owl and Aaron Ampudia, who explained why they chose Baja to stage a reggaeton event.
5: We really started to see a rise of the genre's popularity kind of hitting the masses. Really, in 2017, we saw it. We really cater to the Mexican-American audience. Um, I would say that like 90% or more of our fan base is Mexican-American.
4: And, yeah, and the culture has there. been there in that town, you know? Like ever since when my dad started it 39 years ago, you know? It's been Mexican-Americans or Americans from California coming down. And it's such a unique spot that's 30 minutes away from San Diego. It it just made perfect sense.
1: It also seems like it's a reflection of just how popular reggaeton is beyond its initial fan base or demographic base of the Afro-Caribbean populations in the Northeast. Because that's reflected in the number of views and streaming that that these artists have worldwide, they, they globally dominate the, the viewing and the streaming thing You know, regularly. It struck me that this is like a living, breathing example of how popular this music is outside of that community and in particular within the Mexican American community. I mean, have you ever thought about it that way, that it's like really, it's like a, a very living and breathing example of how popular the music is?
5: From day one, we felt that way. Then I think that with the artists and the people have been able to prove that this is one of the biggest genres in the world. And, you know, I think us being able to go from one weekend in two days to two weekends with three days was a really great example of
1: how large this community really is. Talk to me a little bit about that, that life, that lifestyle, that community that is the border I guess Aaron, since you know you guys have been down there for so long and you're probably raised down there, how is it different than other parts of Mexico and even in uh, other parts of the United States?
4: I, I feel like it's the Americanized part of Mexico, you know, being so close to San Diego, at least us. You know, I grew up in Ensenada, which is not a border town or Rosarito, but Tijuana's right there. And our regular thing would be to go to San Diego on the weekends, you know? Mm-hmm. If, if we were able to, but then looking to people, for example, from Mexico city, well, they may become once a year, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. So it's a
4: whole different culture. When the first times that I was old enough going by myself to Mexico city, paying in dollars anywhere in Baja, it's normal, but paying in dollars in Mexico city, no way, you know, you got to make sure you exchange your money, do all of that. So there's like this crossover in Baja where, people feel safe and they feel like they're kinda at home, but away from home. You know, you're, you're in Mexico in another country, but it's pretty similar in a way to some of the things that you see in Southern California, at least for for Baja
1: Norte. Right? There's also that aspect too of, for example, my mother's family is from New Mexico. And, you know, the family history is is that they never left. The border moved on them, right? That's how far back they go. So that, that whole that whole stretch, like it's a unique part of both the United States and Mexico, because there's a there's a sense that you're living in both worlds. There's a border culture where you live in both worlds. So say like the idea of, of a bicultural, a bilingual presence, just nature, just slip from one language to the other easily like
4: that. Yeah, and you get a lot of people that that live, there's a huge community that Of Americans, you know that that we're like we want to retire in Baja. You know, there's a bunch of crossover both ways that I think benefits everyone. And then, I mean, I I always push on the this like nonsense of you know I get asked a lot because of the businesses that we have in Baja with Americans or Mexican Americans. Of oh, is it safe to cross? Is it safe to do this? You know, and then people drive across or walk across and they're like that's it you know they don't believe it's it's that that easy to go back and forth you know we cross over around 70 80,000 people in two
1: weekends you know and there's no issues really Talk a little bit about the economic impact you guys are having there. Whenever you bring so many people in, are they staying at hotels? Are they eating at the restaurants? You know, what type of economic impact are you guys having on the area? Well, that's the huge part. Every Airbnb and
4: BRBO from Tijuana to Rosarito, every hotel in Rosarito gets sold out within four hours that we announce the dates. And then all the way down to basically Ensenada. So you can't find a hotel. You got to ride a shuttle or maybe stay in San Diego. So the economic impact is is huge. And that's part of the reason why we had so much support from the state. Some businesses, we went and asked them, you know, like, what does this mean to you? It's like, it saved our year, you know. It might have saved my business because of COVID. And it was the first festival back uh, in a year and a half. You now we're the first concert. We're the first festival in Mexico to happen. It was
1: huge for sure. And, w- and one more thing. What do the artists, so what do they tell you? about being able to go to to this area and, and perform? What are, what, are the, what is their reaction? The whole premise of like the beach and creating
5: this really cool, inclusive event, not just for like the people, but for the artists, has gotten tons of really great feedback. Like it's the only festival right now where, you know, 30 to 50 artists come together with all their teams and celebrate together in a really unique place that kind of symbolizes a lot of that like beach and island vibe and feel. And so it just touches them I think a bit differently than like the traditional park festival or hard ticket concert. So it's very much family vibes from every touch point. It's pretty special. They really enjoy it.
1: Thanks for spending time with us along the border. We want to remind you to check out the photos about the bullfighting school at npr.org thepictureshow and go to palabranahj.org for photos of La Muna and her work with refugees in Mexico. Also, we have two more weeks of our special takeover of the Tiny Desk Concerts for Hispanic Heritage Month. Coming up on El Tiny, our videos for Sech and Yendri this week. You have been listening to Alt Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras, as usual. Thank you so much for listening. Man, stay safe. Stay safe out there, fam.
3: Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling, trying to find humanity, or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity and tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories.
5: I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here.
3: Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot, on It's Been a Minute from NPR.